We are starting a new uh, sermon series today, and I'm not sure how long it's going to go. Could go right till June, we'll see. There's just a lot to talk about. We're looking at the book of Luke, and uh, I've entitled this sermon series, A Journey to Jerusalem. If you, um, let me just tell you a little bit about my journey this, uh, over Christmas, because some of you probably had the similar kind of experience, but um, we were expecting a grandchild to be born on the 20th, and of course they don't comply with the uh, anticipated (laughs) birth dates, so he came early on the 15th, and so I took my wife to the ferry, and uh, she went over to help out in Victoria, where my daughter is. And my son and I were going to come uh, later on the, uh, the 20th when the baby was due. And that was the day of the big blizzard. The snowstorm where I, I you know, I've lived and driven cars in Saskatchewan and in Manitoba and in Norway. This was no, um, no better driving than what I've uh, experienced on those roads that day with the slush and the blizzard conditions heading out to the ferry. It's an hour drive for me from Abbotsford. So we got there to find out that none of the staff could get to the ferry terminal because of the blizzard. So we sat from 6 o'clock till, what, 8 hours to 3 o'clock in the afternoon when finally the next shift showed up and we got on the boat and we didn't know if we were going to get out at all. And so my son and I, we slept in the car most of the time, 8 hours, got out, got a Starbucks here and there, but just anticipating that we would get to Victoria and have Christmas because we had Christmas with us in the car. Like, we had the baked goods, we had the roaster pan for the turkey, we had the gifts, we, we had extra food and drinks in there for, for, the, for the event, so as we were like the three wise men, bearing all the gifts, and we're coming, we had to show up. When we finally got to Victoria, we realized that they don't actually know what a snowplow is over there. No streets were cleared, and you, to find a parking space, we brought a, a shovel with us, and you just kind of make a space for the park along the street. And every morning, it was the hunt for the free parking space. Um, and then <clears throat> beyond that, I mean, still Christmas is coming. A few days left, and then my tooth acted up. And, of course, you have an emergency root canal uh, bonus for Christmas. He said it would only cost 300 with my insurance, but it was $500. i am going, <clears throat> Merry Christmas to you! <laughs> And then uh, I, I'll just describe it as a kitchen accident, and I got a Harry Potter scar on my forehead. It was bleeding, and I had this big patch on my head. Like, Tom, sit down. <laughs> no, I'm okay. <laughs> and I'm going, this is hard Christmas. Just having Christmas. And then the baby, of course, we had the new baby. I have feed every two hours, and my, my daughter and her Husband were just exhausted, you know how it is, up every two hours around the clock. So they decided, you know, Christmas Eve, that's the big, for us, a big party celebration. Well, they had to go to bed at seven o'clock. Okay, I guess we can watch another movie. (laughs) Well, we decided to go to uh, the Anglican Cathedral and caught their 10 o'clock high mass for Christmas Eve. As, as my family likes to call it, with all the smells and bells, um, the incense and all these things that we didn't actually know what to do and when to do it and what to say. But it was fascinating and uh, it was very unique for us. And, but we still, you know, the next day was Christmas. And when I grew up, all the kids would get up at like five in the morning. You know what I mean? Like they're so excited, presents. And uh, well, we got up around 10. 
We were staying, oh, by the way, yeah, the apartment that we were going to stay in for free wasn't available for four days because they couldn't get out of, the flights were canceled out of Victoria, so we had hotel expenses for four days on top of Root Canal, and, you know, it's like, I guess we'll eat soup for the next month. Finally, Christmas comes, and, and we, we, we make our way over to my daughter's place, and we have a wonderful time, wonderful meal, wonderful time together with the new baby. And I'm just thinking, you know, what better time to have a new child around Christmas when we're celebrating the birth of Christ, and uh, new things are happening, and our family dynamic is changing, and we all shift. But it was like, finally, Christmas happened. Uh, we didn't care if we were snowed in or not. We were with family. We were there together to celebrate. And uh, anything past that was just bonus for us. And um, looking at this journey to Jerusalem, Jesus had this goal in mind. Like everything was moving towards that destination. He kind of avoided Jerusalem for a long time in his ministry because he knew he was going to end up there. Everything was going to happen of significance for him. His greatest achievement would happen in Jerusalem. If we look at the outline of the book of Luke, we'll see that there's five major sections in Luke, and it starts off with the birth narrative, chapters 1 to 4. And then it moves on to his public ministry, where he's basically establishing who he is. He, he gathers his 12 disciples. He's kind of setting things up for uh, convincing them that he's not just a rabbi. He's more than a rabbi. He's more than a teacher. He's, he's the one. He's the one that was chosen from the beginning of time to redeem humanity. And so then from chapter 9, verse 51, to chapter 19, we call this the travel narrative. And uh, that's what I'm going to be talking about over the next while, just his journey to his destination. He, he had this place, this end point in mind that he was headed to. And then uh, chapters 19 to 23, the final days of his life after his arrest and the All the things that happened with that crucifixion. Finally, the last chapter in Luke talks about his resurrection and his ascension. So the key verse that I'm going to be honing in on today and throughout the series comes from Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And it says, As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. That word resolutely, um, the Greek word, it means to steadfastly make up his mind. So it's like, to the disciples, boys, I, I, I'm, Jerusalem's where we're headed. Everything pertains to going to Jerusalem. So everything that happened before 951 was focused on establishing who he was, and uh, everything from 951 forward is focused on the redemption of humanity. Uh, scholars will see some parallels between Jesus going to Jerusalem and Moses leading the people from Egypt to the promised land. It's fascinating when you look into the, the scriptures, when you take the Old Testament and you see the stories, the, the accounts of what happened, it's particularly with Moses. Uh, it's like Jesus is the new Moses. He's the new leader. He's the one that's going to take his people and redeem them from slavery. So uh, as Moses went from Egypt to the promised land, that was his goal, his destination, constantly on his mind. Um, Jesus had Jerusalem on his mind. It was a destination, not so much a physical destination, 
as a spiritual one. So uh, as Moses went, this is, uh, if you look in the scriptures before Moses' time, there wasn't a whole lot of revelation of who God was. We didn't really know his character. We didn't know his, uh, his methodology, his plans, uh, his goals, his values so much. And so as Moses went through the wilderness with the people, God began revealing himself to the people. When they were sick, God showed himself as the Jehovah Rapha, our healer. When they met conflict, God revealed himself as Jehovah Nisi, our banner. When they needed to deal with sin in their midst, God showed up as Jehovah Shekinu, our righteousness. When they needed provisions, God revealed himself as Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Likewise, and maybe not surprisingly, when Jesus was on his journey, he also showed himself as our healer and our provider and our shepherd and our righteousness, and our defender, and ultimately our Messiah. He identified his entire life and his purpose for what he was doing from Isaiah. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he quotes Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, he also taught about his heavenly father, revealed truths about God, revealed truths about the kingdom of God. People just didn't really know, like they suspected that they knew about what God's kingdom was like, but they didn't know until Jesus actually verbalized it, told them and taught them, sat them down on the Sermon on the Mount and Sermon on the Plain. And as he spoke from the boat in Galilee, he was teaching them all these truths that they didn't know, revealing them um, exact, because he'd been there. He knew what heaven was like. He knew his heavenly father, and he wanted people to know him too. Interesting, too, as Moses went up on Mount Sinai uh, to meet with God, he came back and his face was all glowing. Remember, they had to put a, a veil over him because his face was too bright. Moses, like, <laughs> tone it down, <laughs> dial it down a little bit. You're, you're a little bit too glowy today. I don't know, I've just been with God. It just happened. Well, when, Mo, when Jesus went up on Mount Tabor with his three disciples, he met with Elijah and, and Moses, it says, and the glory of the Lord shone around him there too. It's like there's a lot of parallels going on through this story. Many ways Christ, the Messiah, would, like Moses, lead a new exodus. One from the bondage of sin to the freedom of new life in Christ. To set spiritual captives free. To set at liberty the oppressed. To establish a year of grace and of God's pleasure in redeeming souls. And with Moses, where many of the people did not believe, did not have faith in God, and perished in the wilderness, whole generations were wiped out. Only a few believed. So too was Christ. As he spoke the truth, many people would not believe. In fact, they were offended at his truth and his claim to be the Messiah. And they sought to kill him. There was a rebellion against Moses as well. How did, you kept leading us out here in the desert just for us to die. We'd be better if we went back to Egypt, they said. And God was ready to wipe them all out many times. Yet Moses persisted to show grace and forgiveness and wanted to make it right. God, how can you wipe them all out? Like, what will people say? You know, you, know, for, you, know, you can work with this. Let's, let's work with this. Moses was ready to give his life to save his people. 
at one point. So when we talk about the Old Testament being a foretaste or, or precursor to the New Testament, this is what we mean. On so many occasions, the Old Testament well, was, a, was fulfilled in the New Testament in Christ or paralleled stories in the New Testament. Even communion that we celebrate today was based on the final plague of the ten plagues in Egypt and the Red Sea. The, when they crossed through the sea, it was like the same picture we have with baptism, that we're, we're going through the waters and we're, we're one way going into it, and we come out a different way on the other side. It wasn't easy for the 12 disciples to understand Christ's goal to go to Jerusalem. Several occasions, Jesus tried to explain this was a different kind of a kingdom. In fact, he says in Luke chapter 9, the nation's leaders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law of Moses will make the Son of Man suffer terribly. They will reject him and kill him. But three days later, he will rise to life. The disciples didn't even want to hear that. They weren't interested in hearing that. And when he spoke that, it was like right over their head. No, don't talk like that, Jesus. We don't want to hear that. That's not the kind of leader we're going to follow, one that's going to be beaten up and, and killed. They wanted a different destination. They wanted him to be the warrior king the overthrower of the Roman army. So he had to constantly remind them that his was a different kind of a destination. Not so much the physical one. I mean, Jerusalem was historically very significant in the life of God's peoples where where Zion, Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is built on is where Abraham was called to test his faith. And so also Jesus outside of Jerusalem was called to test his faith in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's like, are you going to go through with this, Jesus? Are you going to cut and run? Is there any other way, God, except the cross? And that famous line, not my will, but yours be done, happened around Jerusalem. Another testing that God had for his son. And, of course, he passed the test with flying colors. So from Luke chapter 9 to chapter 19, Luke was constantly dropping these reminders that Jesus was in motion. He was not just sitting at some synagogue teaching the people. He was in motion going from village to village, and his destination was Jerusalem. So in in the map, when we see that he started off in uh, Galilee region, uh, near the top, somewhere where you see that blue box, I'm sorry, it's a bit fuzzy, and he's going to come from, from the region of Galilee where his, most of his disciples were chosen from. He's going to be going back and forth in this area. Eventually, he's going to come through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. But in the meantime, he's through Samaria. He's around the Jordan region. Uh, sometimes he goes down uh, south and then he comes back up to Galilee. And sometimes he's off to Bethany. and he, he meand- He's a meandering teacher. It's like the, the rivers that kind of go this way and this way. Eventually, they end up in the ocean, but they've got a lot of journey to go in between time. So in Luke chapter 9, it says, they went on to another village as they were going along the road. Someone says, I'm going to follow you wherever I go. In Luke chapter 10, it says, Jesus sent uh, on ahead of him, two by two, his disciples in every town and place where he himself was about to go. Chapter 13, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. 
He even cries out in chapter 13, verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He knew his destination, where he was headed. Chapter 17, it says, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Probably this is when he met up with the woman at the well in Samaria. Chapter 18, it says, he was talking to the 12, and he said, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished there. In chapter 19, on the way, he went through Jericho. He was passing through on the way to Jerusalem. This is where he meets Zacchaeus. We'll talk about a lot of these stories as we go in through this journey together. Chapter 19, it also says, uh, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And uh, finally, it talks about in chapter 19 when he was in the Mount of Olives, which is just outside the walls of Jerusalem. He's praying there. He doesn't like to take the direct route. I mean, he could have saved a lot of time by just headed to Jerusalem. But what he does is he te- the bulk of his teaching and explanation of the kingdom and his father and who he is and his purposes and his expectations for his people. What kind of life do I expect my followers to live? All of that's going to happen on the journey. He's going to reveal things to his people that for all time we're going to need to know. So that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time just um, dissecting his teachings along the journey. Luke chapter 9, just before it says he set his face to Jerusalem, he's calling his 12 disciples and get together. And I've, have you been, anyone been watching the, the Chosen series? Yeah, it's fascinating when he, in this, just recently, it talks about his 12 disciples coming together and he says, I'm sending you all out two by two and you're going to heal the sick, you're going to cast out demons, you're going to preach. And they're going, what? There's no way. Like, we're not you. And he says, no, I'm going to give you the power to do this. They're going, Are you, like, seriously? You want us to do this? And like, I, I never really captured that moment in my own reading of the scripture, how they were kind of stunned and resistant, probably, and like, you're nuts. Send, like, Jesus, there must be another way. He says, don't take anything with you and don't take a walking stick or traveling bag or food or money or a change of clothes. And when you are welcomed to a home, stay there until you leave that town. And if people won't welcome you, leave the town, shake the dust off your feet as a warning to them. And so it says they went from village to village telling the good news and healing people everywhere. Luke chapter, uh, at, at, at the end of chapter 9, it says he sent messengers ahead of him into the city, into Samaria, they wanted to make preparations for him. And in this city, um, it says that they didn't want him to come because he set his face towards Jerusalem. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews, and especially if you're headed to Jerusalem, like, what are you just passing through? Like, why don't you go around like everyone else does? And Jesus says, no, I'm going through Samaria. And, uh, and it's, it's interesting to me, because these disciples, James and John, the two brothers particularly, they had cast out demons, healed people, and preached the gospel, it was probably went to their head a little bit, the power, look what I can do, and uh, it must have been fun. Imagine uh, after the service today, going up to the hospital, and just going ward by ward, healing everybody that's there, that'd be fun. I don't know if we cast a few demons out or not, maybe so. Preach the good news. 
Does it scare you? Well, I think it would have scared the disciples. This is a strange thing you're asking of us, Jesus. Well, and then he sends, uh, in, in, uh, later on, he's going to send, in chapter 10, uh, he's going to send 72 others out ahead of him, two by two, in every town and place where he himself was about to go, says in chapter 10. So not only did he send the 12 disciples out, then he's going to send 72 more people out to all of the towns and villages where Jesus was planning to go. It's kind of like the, the forerunners, like John the Baptist came to, to prepare the way for Jesus. Well, now the disciples and the followers, not just 12, but seven, more than 70 people were going to be sent out to the little villages. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his kingdom. And he says this in verse 16 of chapter 10. The one who hears you will hear me. The one who rejects you will reject me. The one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. This word reject. Um, so he's sending the people out, and he's going to find willing hearers and peaceful people in some places. Other times he's going to find total rejection. Get off my property. I don't want to see you in my town again. This word reject, it means uh, to despise or set aside or disesteem or neutralize, cast off. If someone despises you because of my name, um, they're despising me, he says. So what's interesting is the, uh, they were rejected in the Samaritan village that they went to, and James and John, the sons of thunder, they called him, uh, they said, hey, Jesus, how about we call fire down on this village like Elijah did and just burn them up into crispy critters, and uh, that'll teach them a lesson. I, you know, I think they were quite bold, personally. They were healing some people, casting out demons, preaching the gospel, but now they think they got enough power to call fire down from heaven and consume the village. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you don't even know what spirit you're of. In other words, you're out of your mind if you think I came to destroy people. He says, I came to seek and to save the lost. What Jesus was going to do is turn everything on the head. Everything that the disciples thought they knew about power and influence, he says, no. In Rome, you, you exert power from a top down, um, intimidation. Uh, you, you come in with swords and shields and spears and chariots. You get your way. You dominate. You oppress. You subjugate. He says, but in my kingdom, it's a bottom up. You serve. You love. You show grace and compassion. And they're going... <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure I've ever seen that really work before. He <laughs> says, well, watch. Because in my kingdom, is not like the kingdom of this world. See, a lot of the lessons that they're going to learn are going to challenge their, their thinking, challenge their understanding of culture, uh, of uh, common sense even. It's going to change everything in terms of how his kingdom works. And I think maybe just even prove his point um, after he was rejected in Samaria, he tells a story in Luke chapter 10 about a good, a good what? A good, a good Samaritan. Of all people, he makes the Samaritan out to be the hero of the story. It wasn't the priest, it wasn't the Levite, it was a Samaritan that was the hero that demonstrated love for his neighbor. The woman at the well story, another Samaritan woman, gets taught some of the most incredible, deep theological uh, information uh, on Jesus' travels. A Samaritan woman. 
The 10 lepers that he found in chapter 17, he he heals 10 lepers as he was going uh, through Samaria and Galilee. And uh, nine of them, they all just take off. They run to the temple to say, we're healed, we're healed. And one of them turns around and comes back to thank Jesus. You know who he was? A Samaritan. The hated and despised people of society. He keeps making the hated and the despised and the overlooked the hero of the story. See, he's shifting again their view to see people as God sees them, not as other people see them. He makes the despised and the lowly, the overlooked, the hero. So as we travel with Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem, he's established at this point who he is, and now he's going to start moving more rapidly and more intently towards his destination. I noticed four things in this story so far that probably will be repeated throughout. First of all, Christ often sends an advanced team of messengers ahead of him. Sometimes we're the advanced team that gets sent to take the gospel, the good news, the story of Jesus. We, we may not have the reaction we're looking for. We may not have people turning their lives over to Jesus, but they need to hear the story from somewhere first. The disciples weren't Jesus, but they carried the message of Jesus, and Jesus was going to follow afterwards in all of these villages. So three occasions he sends out workers two by two to go to places he was planning to go, very much like John the Baptist. It was a preparation for the coming of Christ into people's lives, like an appetizer before the main course or an advanced force, checking out the lay of the land before the main troops will follow. Second thing that I notice him doing is he gives his followers' instructions, and then he empowers them to accomplish it. So there's no point in saying, go heal people, cast out demons, uh, set people free if they don't have the power to do it. They're going to be mocked and laughed at and ridiculed and booted out of town if they didn't have the power of Jesus to accomplish it. And so I, I learned from this that when Christ asks us to do something that we can't do, he will empower us to accomplish what it is he asks us. So this next week of prayer and fasting, we're asking Jesus, what do you want us to do? What's your assignment for Maple Ridge Alliance Church? What are we to accomplish in our neighborhoods, door to door, our community, our city, our region? What do you want? What impact are we supposed to have? And you know, when, when you get an assignment from Jesus normally, it's beyond our ability. It requires dependence on him. It requires getting on our knees and saying, okay, we get the assignment, but how do you want us to accomplish it? Well, he provides that too. And he empowers his people to do everything he asks them to do. The third thing was that Christ expands his kingdom through his people. It's not our kingdom. It's not our church. It's not our ministry. It's not our budget. It's not our facilities. Everything belongs to Jesus. It's his church. It's his body. It's his gifts. It's his blessings that we are stewards of. And when he asks us to do something, when he empowers us, we have to realize at the same time that God will not, his power does not flow through unbelievers. You can't just use God's power without his permission. 
The power of God does not flow through unrepentant or disobedient Christians either. Those who do what Christ asks of them, who believe and are baptized, who submit to Christ as Lord and are obedient to the Holy Spirit's guidance will have access to the power of God. And we'll see mighty things happen in the name of Jesus. So he expands his kingdom through his people when he empowers them to, to bring truth, to, to face difficulties, to overcome the challenges with his presence, with his spirit. Everything is a stewardship of his, his blessings, his uh, facilities here, the people that are brought, the money that money is given. It's all a stewardship of his resources and his people to accomplish what he wants this church to do. The fourth thing is that Jesus ties salvation to obedience. In other words, we demonstrate in our actions what has taken place in our heart. I've seen people that claim to be Christians, but everything they do and say discounts it. The language, the joking, the, the lack of involvement in kingdom activity, it's like, are you like really a Christian? You, you say that you're a Christian, but I can't see any validation of it or verification or demonstration of your faith. It starts with being baptized when we are converted and it moves on to ministry, to using our spiritual gifts for his glory and his kingdom. I pick this up from Luke ten twenty when the 72 people come back after using his power to heal and to cast out demons, to speak the gospel, to set free the oppressed. He says, don't rejoice in that, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's like you went out and you faithfully did what I asked you to do. You came back and you demonstrated that you are my follower. You showed people that you actually want to live a life that honors me. Revelation chapter 3 verse 5, Jesus says, The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I like looking at what he said in Luke to the 72. Don't, don't rejoice that, that, that you were able to use my power. Rejoice that your name was written in the book of life. And now in Revelation, he's looking down to John saying, you know, everyone who conquers, who, who was faithful to the end, who, who has lived their life in honoring me, I will confess his name, her name, before my father and before the angels. Today, we are honoring that same Jesus. Jesus. 